If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the book of Acts, the first chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to focus primarily on one verse of scripture, which is Acts chapter one and verse eight. Today's message, which is entitled A New Mission, is the last in our series of following the theme of new life in Christ. Somewhat to refresh your memory to look at previous messages, the first one had to do, of course, with how this new life begins. It begins with the new birth. Jesus talked about this to Nicodemus, of the necessity of one being born, not only physically, having physical life, but one must also be born spiritually and having spiritual life, and that Jesus Christ came into the world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, offered himself on the cross of Calvary in our stead so that when we repent of our sins and invite him and embrace him and accept him into our lives as our personal Lord and Savior, we become new Christians. Paul described it as a new creation or a new creature in Christ Jesus. We receive new life. Paul, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have physical life, you must have spiritual life. It comes about through a new birth experience. After one is born again and receives this new life, he has the security of the believer. That is, once you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved forever. That doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. It just simply means that you can never lose your salvation. DNA says to us that you are your mom and dad's child. Nothing can ever erase that. Nothing can ever take that away from you. You who are born to your mom and your dad and you will be their child forever. Same way with your children or so forth. And so what is true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. That once you are born again into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, you are God's child forever. And John chapter 10 reminds us that we have double security. We are in the, in the Savior's hands and also in the Father's hands. So we have double security. No one, not even the devil, can take our salvation away from us. So we have security. And then we have new communication because once you become a child of God, you can pray to the Father and he'll hear your prayers and he will respond to you. It's a two-way conversation. You share with him what is on your heart. He will respond, of course, uh, appropriately. And then you have a new challenge. <clears throat> Whether you realize it or not, when you became a Christian, you entered spiritual warfare. And every single day you are in, uh, under attack. The devil is constantly looking for ways to bring you down, to destroy you, to weaken you. He will throw one fiery dart, as Paul describes it in the book of Ephesians. He'll throw one fiery dart after another at you, uh, knowing your weak points, knowing what really will bring you down, and he'll do everything within his power. So every day we wake up realizing we have a new challenge. Temptations come our way. And then there's a new habit, a time, sometime, whether it's just a small amount of time or whatever, a time set aside sometime during the day that you can get alone with the Lord, just you and the Lord. The Bible describes it as going to your closet, just sharing with the Lord privacy, uh, whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, receiving strength and encouragement and guidance along the way. Then you have a new guidebook. The new guidebook, of course, is the Bible, God's holy word. And we read it as it says of itself, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God will direct us as we read the scriptures. 
And then, of course, there's a new freedom, that we have the freedom to live our lives in keeping with his will, realizing, however, that when those temptations come, there sometimes uh, we yield to those temptations. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. If that were so, then our Lord would have been a sinner because he was tempted, as we know, according to Matthew's gospel, for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. But our Lord was sinless and perfect. He never sinned. Uh, but you and I, we are different. We are human and we can sin. When we do, it doesn't interrupt our sonship, but it does interrupt our fellowship with the Lord. And uh, so as long as I harbor sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. And so in my quiet time or whenever it may be, the Holy Spirit will convict me that something is wrong in my life. It's just not right interfering with my fellowship with God. And I must confess it in order that that can be removed and I can have uninterrupted fellowship with the Father. And then there's a new family. When you became a Christian, you became a member of the family of God, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I reminded you, the word church is used in two ways in the Bible. It speaks about the uh, fellowship of believers, uh, no matter where they are, the in, entire world. Uh, if you are a Christian, no matter where you live or what church you're a member of, you're part of the universal church of God. But the word church in the New Testament is used primarily of the local congregation, the church at Ephesus, the church at Rome, the church at Thyatira, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Rome, and so forth. So um, the word church in the Bible is used primarily of the local congregation. We are a family. God is my father. God is your father. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And oftentimes we refer to some uh, of one another as brother so-and-so or our ladies don't always like it being called sister so-and-so, but that's what we are. We're a family. We are part of the family of God. And then last week we looked at the message of uh, a new power, that we have the Holy Spirit. When you became a Christian, when you received Jesus, you received Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus in the Spirit. He takes up residence in your heart. He lives within you. You don't have to pray. Once you accept Jesus as your Savior, oh, come, Lord Jesus, into my life. He's there in the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will empower you to uh, face those temptations and overcome them. And, and today we're going to be looking at another area in which the Holy Spirit empowers us. And it is called a new mission. Once you become a child of God, you have a new mission, a new purpose, a new goal in life. And it's called, of course, witnessing. There is one thing that you as a Christian can do that a non-Christian cannot do. Some might say, well, I go to church. I attend church. Well, non-Christians can do that too and do. You say, well, I read my Bible. Well, unsaved people read the Bible too. Some of them do. Uh, so it, that's not it. Uh, you can give money to the church. Well, a, a non-Christian can do that too. Uh, you, you can live according to the golden rule. Well, there are a lot of people in this world who are good moral people, but they're not believers in Christ. They're not committed to the Lord. They've never been saved, but they live good, clean, moral lives. They live according to the golden rule. The one thing that you can do that a non-Christian cannot do is to share your witness to them of how Jesus Christ saved you. You are a witness for the Lord. There are five things that I want to share with you this morning that I outlined for you in your bulletin that will help you to keep up with the message. 
as we work our way through this very important mission that you and I have, and that is to be a witness to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that I want to share with you, of course, is a, a Christian's responsibility. You have the responsibility. Notice what it says. Let's, let's, let's look at Acts chapter 1 for just a moment before we get into the five ideas. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, beginning with verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to, to get involved in, in, in determining the end times and when the Lord is coming back. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. I do that. I look you know, for the coming of the Lord. I don't know how it all is going to unfold. Uh, I don't know when it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Jesus promised that he would come back that he would come back at the end times. Jesus said there would be certain signs that would indicate that he would return. But as to when, exactly when, nobody knows. And if anybody ever says to you, well, I know that he's coming this fall or, or some date next year or whatever, you just mark it down. They don't know what they're talking about. Notice what he says in verse seven. It is not for you to know times or epics which the father has fixed by his own authority. The word fixed means set. There is a time set for the Lord's return, but only God the Father knows, not even Jesus the Son. Now, I don't understand that because Jesus knows everything. He's om om omniscient. He knows all things. Uh, but uh, he says here, but these are his own words. No one knows the exact moment when the Father's going to return, but the Father. He has set a fixed time for that to happen. So then, if we cannot say when he's coming back, what is our responsibility? While we are waiting for the Lord's return, our responsibility is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our business is to help other people to get ready for the Lord's return, whenever that may be. So I must be about the work of my master, knowing that at any moment, at any time, it may be even to this day before we finish this service, that our Lord will return. And until he does return, it is my responsibility as a believer in Christ to bear witness to his saving grace and power to those who don't yet know him. It is my business. I'm not on the time and arrangement committee. I am on the get ready committee, preparation committee. My business as a Christian is to help other people get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even unto the uttermost or remotest part of the earth. So this is a personal responsibility. Notice how many times in verse eight, he uses the personal pronoun of you, Y-O-U. He's talking about his disciples in the passage of scripture, but also it includes you and me. You are a Christian. You have a responsibility to bear witness to the Lord. John Wesley, the, the founder of the Methodist movement and the Methodist church once made this comment, you have only one business and that is the salvation of souls. 
That was his way of saying your primary responsibility. You say, well, I work at this job or I go here. Or, I'm a professor. Or, I'm a, an accountant. Or, I'm a lawyer. Or, I'm a doctor or whatever it is. That, that's, your, that's your vocation. All right? That's how you make a living. But even in all of those areas, your primary responsibility is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to catch men and women for Christ. Proverbs 11:30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. The word wins here, uh, W-I-N-S, is a fisherman's terminology. It would be like you are to take fish or you are to catch fish. When you go fishing, you put bait on a hook with the intent of catching a fish. You have the responsibility of catching the souls of men and women, boys and girls, and bringing them to Christ. Some Christians have the gift of evangelism. The Bible so clearly states that in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. So there are just some individuals, and I know we have, I could point them out to you this morning, individuals in this church here this morning who have the gift of evangelism. It just sets their souls on fire to be able to share Christ with somebody else and bring them to a point in their lives when they repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ. And I bless God, I do not have the, the gift of evangelism. Now I evangelize, but I, I have the responsibility of witnessing just like you do. I lead people to the Lord. I led a person to the Lord this week who had never, they thought they were, but they had never made a commitment to Jesus. And I had the privilege of talking to them and sharing Christ with them, witnessing to them and praying with them and leading them to a saving knowledge of Christ. You don't have to be a, a, a scientist. It's not that technical. It's very simple. You just simply tell other people what you have seen, what you have heard, and what you have experienced and what Jesus Christ has done for you. He will also do for them. And so you have a personal responsibility. Now our church has a mission statement that defines why we exist. And we use the first letters of our church, First Baptist Church, FBC. And our mission statement is find the lost, build the believer, and uh, change the world one person at a time. So our primary responsibility, we have twofold responsibility, win people to Jesus and then teach them about Jesus. Win them and make disciples out of them. Jesus said, all power and authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So we have a personal responsibility. We have examples of this all through the scriptures, but primarily Philip. Philip in the New Testament. Philip, uh, or excuse me, Andrew. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. He brought a young boy who fed five barley loaves and two fishes to Jesus. He brought some Greeks who were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They came to Philip and he requested to see Jesus and Jesus took them to Andrew and Andrew took them to see Jesus. Andrew was always taking somebody to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been to Washington DC or not and visited the, uh, the, the, the wonderful, beautiful, honorable cemetery there to honor uh, the people who have served our country and gave their lives for our country. If you have, then you are aware of the tomb of the unknown, the unknown soldier. They, that tomb contains the remains of a soldier who died on the battlefield, 
but we don't know who he is. There's no identity. There's no way of knowing. Just, they just can't find out who he is. And so he's buried in that tomb and represents all of those who have fallen in every battle that our country has ever been involved in. It's called the tomb of the unknown soldier. The, un, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. has a guard standing there 24 hours a day, every hour on the hour, 365 days a year, whether it's the summer or winter or fall or whenever it may be, a new soldier reports every hour on the hour. When the new guard arrives, he receives his orders from the one who's leaving. And the words have never changed. Those words are the soldier who's leaving says to the soldier who is arriving, orders remain unchanged. And I believe that if Jesus were here today, and he is in the person of the Holy Spirit, the same thing abides for you and for me. Orders have never changed. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Bear witness of my saving grace and power. And we pass that on down to one generation after another. So there's a Christian responsibility. But you, notice the second thing. Not only the Christian's responsibility, but the Christian's power. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word power here is the same word from which we get our word dynamite or dynamo. Dynamite is very powerful, very explosive. The Holy Spirit is very powerful. He comes into your life and he empowers you to face temptations and conquer them. He empowers you to bear witness whenever you witness to someone and share Christ with someone, you pray. I pray, I pray that, that God would touch this person's heart, help them to understand what they're about to do as they pray. And just pray that the Holy Spirit would take that person and literally through his power, transform them in such a manner that Paul says, it's like becoming a new person, a whole new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. A.W. Tozer used to say, our Lord said, go ye, but he also said, tarry ye. Wait, he says. That's what he said to the disciples. If you read on in verses nine and so forth, he said, uh, uh, rather than to going out now, I want you to go out, I'm paraphrasing it here, he said, I want you to go out into the world, but before you do that, you need to wait. Go to the upper room and wait until the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel becomes a reality. And the reference that he was referring to in the prophecy of Joel had to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would empower them, give them courage and, and guidance uh, to, to witness and to share and to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. In Luke 24, uh, 20, uh, 49, it says, and behold, I'm sending you forth. These are the words of Jesus. I'm sending you forth uh, with the promise of the Father being upon you and you are to stay in the city and you are to be clothed with power from on high. So stay until you are empowered and then go. So you ought to spend time in prayer until the Lord leads you to go out and fulfill your responsibility. He will give you the power and the courage to do it. The third thing is the Christian's subject. You shall be my witnesses. The King James may say witnesses unto me. But you're to be my witness. When you, when you share with an individual, you don't talk about the church. That's a good thing to talk about. You don't talk about other things. You don't talk about the ball games or the weather or whatever. That might be a, an entrance into it. But you're there to talk to them about Jesus. 
because Jesus is the perfect sinless son of God. You can't find fault with Christ. And we're to be witnesses of him. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel means good news. And it is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you talk to them about Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless and perfect life, that he died on the cross of Calvary. He took all of your sins upon himself. He died for you in your place. And uh, if you will confess that you are a sinner and repent and turn to Jesus and ask him to save you and to come into your life, he will. So you're there to talk about the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, you have the wonderful, powerful story of Philip, one of the early leaders of the, of the first century church, a man full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told Philip uh, to go out into the desert. Uh, there was a caravan there, and uh, there was an individual in that caravan that uh, the Holy Spirit wanted Philip to witness to. And it was the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know his name. It just says that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. It says in the book of Acts chapter 8 that he was a treasurer to the queen of Candace and uh, that he had been to Jerusalem to, to worship the Lord. He had evidently become a Jewish uh, uh, believer. He had been converted to Judaism and he had been to Jerusalem to worship. When he was riding in the caravan in his chariot, the Holy Spirit led Philip over to him and uh, uh, Philip overheard him reading out of the prophecy of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And uh, he, he looked up and said to the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand uh, what you're reading? And he said, how can I? I don't have anybody to explain it to me. So at the uh, Ethiopian eunuch's invitation, Philip gets up into the chariot and as they continue on their way, uh, F Philip takes those scriptures and he begins to interpret them for him and explain to him that Isaiah was talking about the Lord Jesus and how he would suffer and die in his place. They came to a body of water, might have been a lake or a pond or a stream of some kind, an oasis. And uh, the eunuch said, well, look, here's a, here's a body of water. Here's some water. Can I get baptized? And uh, Philip said, well, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he confessed, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now notice the process. Don't get the cart before the horse. He said, can I get baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, what happens next? Says the eunuch said with his mouth, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed in his heart. He confessed it with his mouth. Having done that, he was saved. Then Philip said, I'll baptize you. I'll baptize you. So he didn't start off talking to him about being baptism, baptized or being join, joining a church. All those things are good and proper, but put it in its proper order. You don't do those things in order to be saved. You learn who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. You open your heart and life up to the Lord Jesus Christ and you invite him into your life and you commit yourself to him. I often say to people that I'm talking to, I said, when it comes to baptism and so forth, I say, well, why do we put people in jail? Do we put people in jail so they can commit crimes or because they have committed crimes? Well, we put people in jail because they have committed crimes. Why do we baptize people? Do we baptize people so they can get saved or because they have been saved? We baptize people because they have been saved. 
If we depend on baptism or good works or something else to save us, then that's all of works, not of grace. And then we can brag about it. Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, not of works lest any man should boast. We're saved by the grace of God. So get it first. First of all, believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. And then be baptized and live your life for him. But the subject is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Share Jesus with them. And then there's the fourth thing. The fourth thing, of course, is the Christian's mission. You'll notice in the passage of Scripture of Acts 1.8, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes on to say that we are to go in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost part of the world. The uttermost part of the world. Now, uh, let's take those words, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and remotest or other uttermost parts of the earth. For us, as First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches, what is our Jerusalem? Our Jerusalem is this city of Nacogdoches and the county of Nacogdoches. This is where the Lord has planted us. This is where the Lord has planted this church. This is why you and I are here. Our responsibility is to reach the people, first of all, in the city of Nacogdoches and the county of Nacogdoches. Then Judea, for us, is the state of Texas, the entire state of Texas. And we do that, of course, as we travel around the state of Texas, but we also have an emphasis and a ministry in our state for we oftentimes take up an offering in our church called uh, uh, the Texas State Missions Offering. And that money is used to support our state missionary. We have individuals scattered all over the state of Texas whose responsibility is to share Christ with other people that you and I would never have an opportunity to speak to. But through our prayers and through our money that we give to support our state missions, we are a part of all of that. So our Judea is the state of Texas. Our Samaria is the United States of America. So it just starts here, spreads to Texas, and then goes through all of the United States of America. And we have what's called North American missionaries. We have, there are parts of our country that, that where there are people who've never heard of Jesus. That's hard to believe we're living in an America supposedly a Christian nation, there are people walking all around us who've never even heard of Jesus, don't even know what it's all about. And so our Samaria is the United States. What is the uttermost parts, or as it says, the remotest part of the earth? That's the entire world, the entire world. We have a responsibility, not just to read Nacogdoches, but the entire world. Go into all the nations, our Lord commanded, and bear witness for him. Now, one of the ways that you can do this, and I've got this printed for you on your bulletin. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you will find what I'm calling a, 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 um, an outline for witnessing. And uh, there is one correction that needs to be made on it there where about the fourth one where it says that we are to repent. And I believe it, it says by the grace of God or whatever, it should be uh, um, uh, repent of your sins. That's about the fourth one, I believe it is. So you might make that correction. But uh, if you're wanting to know how you can talk to somebody about Jesus and, and how they can bear witness and, and lead them to, to a saving knowledge of Christ, here are the steps that you can follow and, and follow and explain those step by step with them. You might cut this out that's why I had it printed in your bulletin, not just a card. You can cut it out, put it in your purse, put it in your billfold, put it in your pocket. 
Carry it with you. You never know when you'll have an opportunity to share with somebody. How do you do that? Here are five, six steps that you take to lead a person to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, no matter where you are. You might even take this and memorize these steps and use them to share with somebody. It might be a family member. It might be somebody at work. It might be somebody at school. It might be a total stranger, wherever you may be. But if you'll take that outline and, and study it and read over it uh, and use it, it will help you in witnessing to other people and bringing them to a point in their lives when they will accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. The final thing that I share with you, of course, has to do with the Christian's reward. And the final thing about this is the wonderful joy and the excitement of knowing that you have led somebody to trust Jesus. There's nothing like it in all the world. There's, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents of their sins. And, you know, we read that, we think, well, that's the angels rejoicing. Well, it may be. On the other hand, it says in the presence of God th that the angels rejoice. I believe it also includes the Father. There is joy in heaven. The Father gets excited and is full of joy when somebody accepts Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. So it could be that it's the Father who's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. He's represented in the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Some people refer to it as the faithful father because here's a father in that story who faithfully waits at the door of his house looking down the road for the day when his son will return. And when he sees his son coming, he takes out running toward him, comes up to him, embraces him, cries over him, welcomes him to the family. So it's the father who is rejoicing as well. But oh, the day, the day, the day, the day when you stand in the presence of God and you will and I will. Will there be anybody there that will come up to you and say, thank you for leading me to Jesus? Thank you for telling me how I could be saved. What will be your joy and your crown? Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Oh, the joy in your heart when you stand there in the presence of the Lord and you're able to put your arms and they put their arms around you of people that you have led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is great, great joy. First Thessalonians 3, 9 says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? We will rejoice in the presence of God. We'll get excited, man, that, that God would use me to lead someone to accept Jesus as their Savior. Psalm 126, 6, he who goes forth to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Charles Luther once wrote a hymn, must I go and empty handed? It's talking about when you stand before the Lord, when you leave this place, this earth, and you go to stand in the presence of the Lord. He says in his song, must I go and empty handed? Thus my dear redeemer meet, not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty handed? Must I meet my savior soul? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? No, you don't have to. But I'm afraid that some of us will have to stand there empty-handed saying, Lord, I never led anybody to trust you. Never told anybody about you. Well, weren't you my child? Yeah. 
Weren't you to bear witness? Yes. Didn't I say I'd give you the power to do it? Yes. Didn't I say I'd lay somebody on your heart to do so? Yes. Didn't I say I'd be there to bring conviction to their heart? Yes. Then why didn't you do it? I brought people into your path, into your life. You had many opportunities to share Jesus. And here you are standing empty-handed, not one soul that you could present to Jesus and say, I led him to Christ. I led her to Jesus. He accepted him. She accepted him because of the witness that I bore. There once lived a keeper of a lighthouse. He had one job. His job was to keep the light burning. He even had an emergency vat in the case that the main vat would run dry out of fuel. One day there was a knock at the door. A man in a motorboat was out of gas. The lighthouse keeper felt sorry for him. So he took some fuel out of his emergency vat and gave it to the man. The next day he had another caller. Someone else had needed fuel. He had heard how kind and helpful the lighthouse keeper was. The lighthouse keeper became the most popular man in the community. He became known as the most benevolent fan in town. Everyone knew that if they had trouble and if they could make it to the lighthouse, they would be in safe hands. Late one night, there was a sound from a ship in distress. The keeper awakened to see the light going out in the tower. He raced down the staircase and switched the light to the emergency vat, but it was empty. That night, a ship crashed on the rocks at the foot of the lighthouse, and everyone on board lost their lives. It made no difference that he had helped so many people in lesser ways. The fact was that a ship crashed because he had failed to do the one thing that he had put there, been put there to do, and that was to keep the light burning in total darkness. There are many things that a Christian can do to help his fellow man. And there are endless little things that a church can do for other people. But there's only one thing that Christians have been called to do above all else and before all else, and that is to keep the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ lit reaching out into a world that is filled with the darkness of sin. Soul winning, witnessing, sharing, evangelism, whatever term you want to use, witnessing is first with God and it had better be the first for us. Let's bow together, please. Father, you have given us an extremely important responsibility as new creatures in Christ Jesus to go out into a lost and dying world and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those who will listen. And thank, we, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our, our personal power and, and the presence that you give to us by, by residing in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for directing us. Thank you for leading us to people or having people to cross our paths as we say that we have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them that they too may taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. We thank you for the responsibility that you've given to this church that we are to be a lighthouse in this community and in this state and in this nation and in this world that we're to share Christ and keep the light of salvation burning that those who are in total darkness might come to the light and be saved. I pray this morning, Father, that if there's someone here in this congregation, whether they're in the balcony or on this main floor or in the Lord Auditorium who've never trusted Christ, 
They may give the appearance of being religious and, and honoring God, but they've never repented. They've never turned to Jesus. They've never asked the Lord to save them. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you will bring convicting power to those who are here who've not known Christ and have never made that decision. Help them to realize how simply profound and profoundly simple it can be to just turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and I know that Jesus died for me and I'm asking him now to please come into my heart and save me. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll do your work today that we might bring honor and glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and great joy in the presence of God the Father in whose name I pray, amen. Andre's going to lead us. If you would please stand and if God, the Holy Spirit is leading you and speaking to you to come today, I'll be here at the front to receive you.